Hello and welcome to Calamity, a podcast about natural and not-so-natural disasters. In each episode, we examine a catastrophic event from world history. We are your hosts, the Coolman Sisters. I'm Jema. I'm Jillian. And I'm Caitlin. And today we are going to be looking at a fairly well-known disaster, but we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to go to the Ukraine in 1986 and we're going to talk about chernobyl all right so this is one that i think um a lot of people know a little bit about but it's actually a really fascinating story when you get down into the details and one of the reasons that i chose to do this right now um, and some of our listeners may know this as well there's recently been a wonderful uh, HBO series. It's like a mini series, five, I believe it's five episodes long, um, that kind of goes through the whole event. And along with that mini series, there's a podcast which is called, um, I think it's just called the Chernobyl Podcast. And that's hosted by Peter Sagal, who is an NPR person. And he also hosts Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, But this is a much less funny but very interesting um, podcast. And he hosts that along with the creator of the HBO documentary, Craig Mazin. So um, you're kind of getting an inside look on the making of. And um, so the the HBO documentary, or not documentary, I'm sorry, the HBO series is... um, really fantastic and they went way out of their way to make it um as close as possible to the original timeline and you know they went as far as like actually getting the original you know original outfits that are still they were still around and you know they if there was a helmet needed they would have to go find the the actual helmet and um and use the real thing plus re kind of rebuilding a a uh, version of the Chernobyl power plant to uh, to use in the filming. Uh, and then the podcast is uh, a deep dive into the making of, and they go into the details of how, like, kind of how hard it was to make, and also uh, talks a little bit about where, where they made any changes to the actual story, um, because it does, uh, they did change the timing of a couple things so they just kind of come clean about that kind of stuff. So here's here's where, in order to make it a reasonable television show, we had to, you know, fudge this or move this up or whatever. So mm-hmm. they talk about that. I highly recommend both. I think I've watched this miniseries and listened to the podcast like three times. Uh, and that was just for fun, not even because I just needed to do it for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Really interesting. Wow. And then also there, uh, there's a, a book that's been out for a while is called Voices of Chernobyl by Svetlana Alexievich. And she interviewed uh-huh. people who actually were at Chernobyl uh, at, in, in all different capacities. So people who worked at the plant, people who helped with the, the um, recovery efforts, people who were in government and helped with the cover up, which I'll get into. Uh, and regular citizens of the nearby uh, towns and cities who were affected by it. Um, she's actually a Nobel Prize winner. Cool. Um, 
and just one more before I dive into the story. Uh, really great book called Midnight in Chernobyl, written by Adam Hinkabotham. He this is a new book. It just came out. I think it's only available in hardback right now, but it's a very good book that dives really deeply into the details. So this kind of felt like the time uh, to dive into Chernobyl because it's kind of in the it's in the zeitgeist. Is that the right word? Yeah. Sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in the air, you know. It's, a lot of people are talking about it. So I'm going to tell you the story. But first, just kind of curious. Um, I want to ask Caitlin first. Like, what do you what do you know about Chernobyl? Like, what is the like your general? And I'm not I'm not saying this to tease you or make you sound stupid. I'm just kind of curious. Like. We all know a little bit about it because it's in the general knowledge. Right. So um, I know that you're not teasing me. Um, but I also, on the spot. And I, I also understand the podcast why you're asking Millions me. of people because, listen to. Right. But of the three of us, I definitely pay the least amount of attention, A, to news, and B, to world events, and C, to any sort of actual, like, literature, history, that type of thing. So... Yes, I recognize the name Chernobyl, and you had told me that it was an idea of yours, you know, several weeks back, hey, I want to do a uh, podcast on Chernobyl. I really, honestly, like, nothing came to mind when you said it. I was like, great, that thing, I I definitely know that's a word, and I had no association with it, so I'm really wow. sorry. Um, <laughs> In all fairness, you were one year old when it happened. Yeah, I was one year old. I certainly don't have any firsthand you know, news recollection of it. And I, just I mean, I was, I was four, so I don't think I knew much about it back then either. But I was just in my own world as a child for so long. And then as an adult, I am sure that I learned about it in high school or college, probably both. Um, I think you've made every effort and... to learn as little as possible. <laughs> but hey, look so, at far, so far, Jillian, I know that it was... Um, in the Ukraine, because, you know, you've just mentioned that. Also, it happened in a power plant where people wear helmets. So I know that much. <laughs> <laughs> Not a power plant, a plant, a plant of some sort. Okay. <laughs> so I'm Jamie, sorry. What about, what about you? Same. I imagine the same for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, um, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I, you know, honestly, if if I had had to guess what year it happened, though, I don't think I would have guessed the 80s. Oh, um, really? Older? Older, yeah. Uh-huh. Because because we, uh, because we it happened when I was a kid, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really like, I don't think it was studied enough or that there was enough information to yeah. have it be taught, really. I mean... Well, it- so, no, uh, I think that's why it's this is in the it's in the air right now. Mm-hmm. The, the zeitgeist to use that word twice in one five minute period, <laughs> uh, because because facts are coming available now that weren't because the USSR did not like they did everything they could to make sure as little information got out sure. as possible. Yeah. So now things have relaxed a lot. Enough time has passed. Most of the major major players have died, so it's a kind of okay to to tell the story in a more honest way. So yeah, I I was actually when um when I heard what year it was, I was a little surprised, 
yeah, that I was born that, you know, that I was, that I was alive. I really thought it was something that, that predated me. So, um, I did know it was in the Ukraine, but I definitely associated it with, with Russia. And I think in my mind, it yeah. was, well, it was further away at the time. So I, yeah, but I, but I think in my mind, I pictured it being much further away from the rest of Europe, knowing that it was in the Ukraine. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, I just Learn sort of about that. pictured it. I mean, yeah. Russia is huge and I just pictured it being far away, you know, the, the other end of Russia or something like mm. I, didn't, I didn't envision it that close to, to Europe, really to the rest of Europe. Ooh. No. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> all of those details but well i kind of want to set the scene a little bit then um i know it's so... a tourist attraction now people uh people you know pay to go visit and yes. put on the hazmat suits and walk around yeah. and you'll see it on a buzz a buzzfeed list or seven where it's like these mysterious towns that are, have been abandoned um and there'll be pictures of it um pretty great pictures really but um, I think I remember reading a little bit about it in um, in that really great book called The World Without Us. Yes. That, I can't remember the author of that, but but it talked about, you know, this was a place where no one had been for a long, long time. So it was kind of a good place to study what happens to an area that was a civilized area that was like built up. And, exactly. Yeah. Like, like, how does nature take over and either you know, partly repair itself, but also just sort of, you know, take over whatever, you know, it always wins. So that book is really good. You should quickly Google the author so we can give him some credit because that book is fantastic. Um, so the USSR, what it was like at the time, it was a really different kind of country than we're used to. Um, there was extreme patriotism and a lot of fear if you didn't display your patriotism. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was everyone kind of put on a show, looks were everything. You had to be all about the Communist Party that was in charge. Um, and there were pretty bad consequences if you weren't. So everyone, so it was like the, your duty to the country was the number one thing uh, and not you know, individual freedom or individual happiness, not important okay. in this culture. Um, and that wasn't something that was just um, like a propaganda to the people, like the people, people bought into it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to make it sound like, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like to just like pretend that my country was the best when in fact, I know it's not, but um, that's what they were, that's what they were doing. Like they kind of kept anything that was bad was a secret. And then they always pretended to be better in better shape than they were. Uh-huh. And everyone towed the party line. You never went out of line. You always obeyed chain of command. Mm-hmm. It was very kind of militaristic. Um, but that really, really truly was the actual national culture from the top to the bottom. That's kind of what they were up to at the time. Okay. Things have loosened and relaxed since then. Uh, Jayma, did you have that author? Yeah, it was Alan Wiseman, uh, spelled W-E-I-S-M-A-N. Yes, The World Without Us. It's a very good book. Really good. Okay. Um, 
let me tell you a little more. Do 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 do. All right. So okay, one thing that I need to kind of instill, and it's this is sort of abstract, but before this happened, Chernobyl was just a city. Like now, the word means disaster. Like it's almost synonymous with a major disaster. Um, but you kind of have to remember that at the time, it that Chernobyl was just one town of many towns that had around the world that had nuclear reactors, and um, and in fact, nuclear reactors hadn't had a major disaster. They were they were considered safe, and they were considered one of the cleanest ways to create energy. You know, we were in the nuclear age. We'd have, you know, we'd make, we created a bomb and all that, which that was back in the fifties, but now we were using it for good. Um, as like a clean way to power our cities. Mm-hmm. It's still considered right. A clean. It, it It is, except don't you think it's tainted? Like a lot of people, I think have a negative view of nuclear power just because of Chernobyl, three mile Island, which I'll probably do another episode on. Um, and even the Fukushima power plant in Japan yeah. after that, um, I would think it was 2009, earthquake, yeah. tsunami. Yeah. Doubleheader. But, but it does seem like those those disasters, I, I don't know as much as I should about the Three Mile Island, but, but, you know, those were kind of, I mean, it is scary that we've had multiple disasters with this technology, and they've been pretty huge and horrendous. You're saying they were anomalies. I mean, when you have three, it's probably no longer an anomaly, but to a certain extent. It really depends on how three out of how many. Right. I mean, I mean, we talk about, you know, airplane disasters and how safe it actually is to travel by, by air and just how much energy is, I I mean, I don't have, I don't have these stats, but how much energy is actually, you know, maybe not here, uh, not as much in the U.S. or definitely not in this part of the country because we have so much um, hydropower for us here, but um, in the Northwest. But, um, you know, lots of countries are heavily invested in nuclear nuclear power and it, yes. you know, on a just, you know, 24-7 basis and virtually no disaster. So, I don't know. It it is I it think, is still I think a pretty right. clean. Uh-huh. I kind of agree with Jillian though because um, you know I think of a nuclear power plant and I know that there is this there's a risk associated with it and there's protocols and there's you know you have to do things by the book and you have to clean things a certain way and you have all these regulations you have to meet and if you take something like hydropower or wind power you know if like if a wind turbine breaks it's really going to be okay. Whereas if a nuclear power Unless plant breaks. falls on your head. <laughs> right. Or kills the birds. There's that. There's oh, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything comes with risk. So Actually, you know, I know there is a story. Someone did die on a wind turbine because it caught yeah. fire and he was stuck up top. Oh, he couldn't get down. Oh. See, they're okay. very dangerous. Very did, dangerous. Didn't okay, a wind yeah. turbine just cause a, a fire, a, uh, a forest fire somewhere? Or maybe not forest fire, but like a grass fire, I think. I have no idea. But also, I don't want to put down wind wind power anymore. I know. <laughs> I'm a fan. <laughs> okay. So, but, but I'm a fan of nuclear power, too, actually. These are, you're right. Like, there's a risk. It's just like boil, 
you know, burning coal, which is how we like to get our electricity. It's super dirty. It kills tons of people yeah. because we breathe in the fumes. Sure. It's ruining the planet. We'll probably all die from it. And yet we still consider that to be the best, our best option. So it, it probably, there I mean, are in the, some safety in the, risks to any kind. In the course of history, electric. that coal has probably killed more people from top to bottom from like mining the coal all the way through, Absolutely. you know, the breathing, the, the, uh, the smog. I mean, yep. that's probably killed so many more people and harm the planet so much more than yeah well and you're gonna see i'm gonna talk about the numbers later even chernobyl which we we think of as this massive disaster um when when we when i start to talk about numbers of people who are actually affected not affected but uh mortally affected uh the numbers aren't as big as i thought they were Hmm. so but i want to get to that after i tell you a little bit about what happened okay okay so, first of all, let me just tell you, I'm going to go to science. This is always worrisome, but I wanted to at least explain how a nuclear reactor works. <laughs> okay, good luck. <laughs> okay. It works because of fission. Okay, fission. Yep. Yep. Fission generates heat. Large, large, large amounts of heat. I think fission is like something to do with knocking atoms together. Or yeah, making them move really fast. Or make, yeah. Um, so that's fission. And then it generates a ton of heat. The heat... So there's water involved then too. The heat changes the water into steam. Steam powers these big electric turbines, which makes electricity. Does that okay. make sense? So instead of burning coal to heat water to create steam to power your turbines you're uh-huh. using this fission process which is um clean burning okay for the okay. most part the um it, it, the heat that's generated is insanely hot and so it's um it's surrounded like it has to be really well contained Right. So there's um, there is graphite inside a nuclear reactor. I don't know the properties of graphite, but apparently that's like right at the center of a nuclear nuclear core. It's like a bunch of number two pencils. Yes, it's what we make our pencils out of. Um, And then, of course, it's there are these massive water tanks that are involved and the water tanks are intended a, of course, to create the steam, but also the water, they use cold water to keep the reactor at a reasonable temperature. So it cools, it circles all around the thing um, uh-huh. in order to, to keep it cool. So if it's getting too hot, you just put more cooled water in there. So there's a, the water in the tanks kind of becomes important later because um, they're these big tanks that are used for cooling. Okay. Um, the first nuclear reactor to successfully create electricity was in Idaho in 1951. Really? And it created just enough power for four light bulbs. <laughs> so, a little snippet of information. Uh, right now, there are 437 reactors around the world, and that creates 5% of the world's energy. Huh. All right, now let's talk about what actually happened in this thing. 
Um, okay, so it is about 1.30 in the morning, April 20, whatever I said earlier, 26th. At 1.23.45, uh, April 26, 1986, there was an explosion at the power plant. Now, leading up to that, um, they, the workers at the plant had been needing to do a, a test, uh, and the test involved them powering down the reactor to a really low level uh which was dangerous to do so you need to have some safety safeguards in place they'd been needing to do this test for a while and people were getting people the higher ups were getting mad that they hadn't done it but the reactor was also having some some issues just minor issues to do with like the water and what so so it just so happened that the water particularly in the cooling towers just kind of just on that day had been drained out so that they could kind of fix whatever was wrong with the cooling towers. And mm-hmm. on that same day, they were running this test mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. unexpectedly the nuclear reactor, the, um, and this is the number four reactor, I should say, because a nuclear power plant often ha- will have multiple reactors. I think this one maybe had seven. Don't quote me on that. Those of you who are writing a term paper on this, um, <laughs> but there were there were a bunch of them. So this just happened to be the number four, and they like it got too hot, and they were like, "Well, that's no problem. We'll just cool, cool it down." With water. So when the when, when the explosion happened, it the the blast went straight up into the sky. So they. I felt it in the building, but it wasn't the kind of blast that goes outward horizontally where you, where it was like knocking out walls and things. Uh-huh. I mean, it did knock out its immediate casing, its immediate walls, but right. most of the workers in the control room, I mean, they felt it. They didn't know what it was. So people were sent to go check on it. Oh. Um, and the, the first guy who went to go check, he came back to the control room obviously in complete shock and he said it's gone there's no there's no reactor the reactor core is gone and nobody believed him because it really and this wasn't just a russia thing or ussr thing this probably would have been true in the states too or anywhere but um at the time it wasn't really thought that a nuclear reactor could explode it's kind of like you can't fail like the titanic syndrome but why why i mean this is this is the same technology as the bomb right yes and i so, i don't know the exact science but they knew that a nuclear reactor could melt down but hmm. an actual like fiery explosion was not heard of oh okay uh, given given the safeguards that were in place hmm. um they just didn't think that was possible and I don't exactly understand the difference between a meltdown and an explosion. I apologize. Um, that, uh, it's beyond me. In any case, so they, they just, there was, and this happens in a lot of disasters, there was a, a certain amount of disbelief, like this couldn't be happening, and that really slowed down any efforts to respond and fix things. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
there was a, a supervisor and this name will be important later but his name the kind of the, the person who was in charge that night of running the reactor was a man named An, uh, Anatoly I'm sorry Anatoly Dyatlov he was the deputy deputy chief engineer uh, he was supervising that safety test and was kind of in, basically in charge of that whole reactor for the night and he had just the worst blinders on and if you watch the HBO series you kind of you'll just be yelling at the screen especially you Caitlin because you know how bad it is and he's just he refuses to believe it and so he keeps sending men in to like go like he he wants people to go in and and turn on some additional water tanks to like cool to hose down and like cool down the reactor core uh, which is ridiculous because there was no reactor core it had exploded it was gone Uh, so he sent a number of people in that night is he watching a monitor that's telling him that it's no. I mean how does he there's no, there's no video monitor oh and you know this is an important part sure but like sensors or something yes yeah, so sensors here's the thing the sensors have a top uh like a limit right right of sensitivity. Yeah, like your speedometer and, then, and they were exactly so they were at the top and uh and so they did I mean that was a little shady. They did they did try to find a, a better sense. They had a couple better sense like these were like really expensive fancy sensors which were locked in a separate room in a separate building. So it took them forever to go find those that that went up higher. And when they eventually got those sensors back, they were maxed out too. Wow. But they kept saying, "Oh, they're just faulty." And right. So the number... I mean, sometimes sometimes um like thinking about cars and stuff like if, if a sensor is going out on your car and it's telling you that something's wrong but you check the thing and it's like no that's actually not, not wrong like the, the act i've gone into the the mechanical pieces and it's operating perfectly fine oh that's because the sensor broke and the sensor says either it's it's all the way at the top or all the way at the bottom but it's just because it, it cannot read anything yeah. anymore and, and they probably just assumed it was a sensor issue and not but um, yeah, totally agree with you. I would 100% be yelling at the screen. <laughs> I think it was more wishful thing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So they were going with that top number on the sensor. So that man, uh, basically the Communist Party, because this kind of had to make it, it was a major national disaster. It had to make its way up to the, to the uh, Gorbachev or whatever, whoever he was. Um, I mean, that was his name, but I don't know. Was the prime minister, or I don't know what his name was, his title. The guy who led the USSR at the time. Uh, <laughs> so he he met with leadership, and he tells them that yes, there was like a something went wrong. It's fine. We're cooling it down. We're using the water in the tanks to cool it down, uh, even though there wasn't water in the tanks. But he didn't really understand that, and yeah. he reported that the you know the le- the level of radiation that had escaped was this top limit on the badge. And and everyone just kind of accepted that. And they were like, oh, good, good. Because no one wanted to believe it was bad. And, and again, because in the Soviet Union, like, you didn't want egg on your face. Like, you didn't want, uh, you know, if something did go wrong, you needed to find someone else to blame or you would, the punishment would be so severe for you. Like, not just you, but, you know, your whole family might be, might experience some negative effects. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd lose your job and maybe they all would too or who knows. So... 
so he was doing his best to paint a rosy picture of what was going on and that information got passed up and up and up the chain so the the downside was as that information went up the chain to more and more important people who had the power to do to like really make a difference they didn't have good information to act on so they like went back to bed because again this happened at one in the morning everyone went back to bed and they didn't even have a meeting um to discuss what to do until like 3 a.m. the next, or I'm sorry, 3 p.m. the next afternoon. So Hmm. it was a very like kind of slow and slow and steady response because they just did not understand the scope of the thing. So Jillian, can I interject a little bit? Absolutely. I know that you're getting there, but at this point in the story, I'm getting curious um, about the effects of this explosion on humanity like i know that you're going to get there but uh like if it's been an explosion through the building up through the roof out into the sky so that the immediate town or neighborhood is affected by you know chemicals that are in the process of fusion which is humanity like fusion fusion sorry fusion fusion so (laughs) sorry so I guess, and you know me, I always want to know who's going to die and who's not going to die. Um, all these people who this jerk-faced deputy guy is sending in to check on, I'm sure they are all going to die because they're, you know, getting super exposed. Mm-hmm. And I'm again, I know they have protocols, maybe they have suits on and whatnot, but um, mm-hmm. without ruining your story, would you mind jumping to that point and kind of yes. telling us Yes, in fact, this is a good about, spot for that. Okay. So yes, the the workers who were at the plant that night uh, was kind of a skeleton shift because there was a day shift and a night shift, but the night shift was a little smaller. And um, the ones that he had kind of sent to go look at the reactor, they looked into it like with, it was exploded and and glowing and crazy. Like they, they, um, several of them didn't, didn't live through the night so they wow um they and you you know your skin would blister and um you could being that close to to the radiation um you you couldn't live very long but some of them lived for a few days longer so and which is really helpful because we were able they were able to be interviewed and this is how we know what happened that oh, okay. is because some of them did survive long enough to tell their story and someone was smart enough to go in and ask them their their stories so we knew what happened inside that night um there were a few men who went in and um because Diallo had told them to spray water on they had to go in uh, and, and the system because of the explosion the systems weren't all online they weren't working they had to go in and manually turn on the water. And so they did that, even though it was they knew it was a death sentence. Walking into that area and like turning these big wheels to turn to open the water tanks to spray water on an open nuclear reactor, which is useless anyway. Um, they knew they were doing that, but they'd been ordered to do it by the person above them. Oh, it was kind of like oh. deciding deciding whether to like ruin your life by not obeying or ruin your life by going in and doing the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like the same, you know, that that decision was just impossible for them. Yeah. So 
and it was so built into the culture that no matter what happens, you obey. So um, there was at least one man who um, told his story later, but he, he went in and he did the, he opened the water valves. Um, he went home and slept for a few hours and then went back to the plant and uh, helped out again during like the next shift. And um, then of course he was too, but by, by then he was too sick to continue and he went to the hospital. But um, so that's the initial, that's the initial people who were right there on scene. The next group of people I want to tell you about were the first responders. It, the, the fire, um, there was a fire on the roof of the building that was caused by the explosion. And so when the alert went out, they said there was a, fi- a, roof, a, a roof fire. And so the fire department was called out to put out the fire. And um, which just which is accurate, but it's just not the full picture. Can you imagine being a firefighter going to a scene like, oh, we need to put out a routine fire that happens to be on a plant, but like not understanding the fact that there's been an actual nuclear explosion in connection with the fires? Well, and these people, I mean, I don't want to assume that they didn't understand about nuclear radiation, but um but i I suspect it just wasn't widely known that radiation was as deadly as it is mm-hmm. and so they you know they went in and they really it was it was fire trucks they they went in they had their fire gear on, on i suppose but they they were spraying their water directly on this open uh remains of this nuclear core and uh there was graphite, uh, which is which is what forms the core, uh, kind of sprinkled around because it had exploded, and a few of them kind of were like, "What is that?" Because it looked, it was a funny kind of rubble, um, mm-hmm. kind of a jagged, funny gray rubble that didn't look like what you would normal normally see after an explosion. And so a few of them um, picked up the pieces, uh, and they, I mean. It would it burn it would burn right through your because it was so radioactive it would burn right through your your clothes and your hands and and whatever else. Wow. Uh, but the people who just were kind of not necessarily touching anything but spraying water on and being really close, they did get very sick. But they lasted a, a week or two in the hospital. Uh, and I'll go into some more details about that. Then, then let me tell you the closest city. So Chernobyl is a large city, a largest sh- city in Ukraine, but it's and this power plant was named after that city, but it was actually a little ways out of the city, and the workers lived in a small town, small city, called Priapet. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is something the Ukraine or not the Ukraine, the USSR did a lot. They would where they had a big factory or a big uh, power plant or something similar, they would then build a little town uh, for, or a little city for the workers. So you would live right outside. So, and this was even closer than the city of Chernobyl. So um, most of the people who were immediately affected were from the city of Priapet. And when you look at photos mm-hmm. now that show like abandoned homes and things, that's what you're seeing. It's the city of Priapet. So they went out, it was, again, it it happened at one in the morning, but because it was a big explosion and then there were fire alarms uh, going off, a lot of people woke up. 
and it was this really beautiful site. The um, I mean, you could tell there'd been some kind of explosion at the power plant, which they could kind of see from parts of the city. And in particular, there was this big bridge uh, that kind of went over a river there, and it was a great viewpoint to look at the power plant. And so tons and tons of people went out, and they were about a kilometer away. Uh, and the the power plant was glowing, and it had this big blue stripy light that shot up to straight up to the sky. Uh, and again, it's the middle of the night, so that's kind of crazy. And it turned out to be this like ionization of oxygen part- particles. It was actually breaking apart our own atmosphere, and that's what caused it to turn blue. I don't exactly know how that happens either, but that's what it says. Uh, but it but it looked beautiful to them. So like whole entire families were out there standing on this bridge, um, watching this happen. There also was nuclear. There was fallout kind of falling. There was um, a certain amount of like ash and debris that was sprinkling down kind of lightly um and again no one no one warned people that it was no one said go back into your homes or anything like that um at this point everything that happened from the higher-ups was a cover-up to try and say it's not as bad as you think you're perfectly safe everything's great Mm -hmm. so um that's where we're at initially let's see uh okay so once the information moves up to the higher levels of government, there is a senior scientist who um, he's, he's really, he's at the federal level. He's really high up and he is kind of brought in kind of just as like, I mean, the politicians are supposed to make the decisions, but he's brought in kind of just to answer a few questions. But once he gets into the meeting, he's like, no, 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 no. This is really bad. This is not, this is not good. So, so they, and they don't really believe him. So they send him down there to check it out himself. Oh my gosh. Uh, I believe he is in Moscow initially. Mm -hmm. So he, he flies down with um, one party leader. And so this kind of team of two, they go down and they're, they're flying over the plant the next day. And the party leader says, uh, well, let's fly directly over it to see what the reactor looks like from the top. And the scientist, he has to, like, scream his head off at the pilot. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. Like, if we get right into that beam of blue light, we, we, we'll, we'll die immediately. Wow. Um, and he was right. So they, they avoided it that day. But there, there was a later moment when another helicopter got too close mm. um, to that radiation zone. And they did, uh, they did, cul- they did crash. Wow. They, they all died and they crashed. Um, so it, do, it affected the, the humans in the machine, not the helicopter necessarily? Yeah, I think it affected both. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and, you know, what else is crazy is once you've been irradiated, you're irradiated. So these people were being taken to the hospital once they got radiation sickness, like the first responders and some of the workers who'd been on shift that night. Um, And radiation sickness wasn't something that people knew very much about, like the medical field. And Mm -hmm. it it presents sort of like a burn. Like that's what it looks like initially. And so initially some of the doctors were like treating it 
with um and well, burn science couldn't have been that good at that time either because they were they were treating it with like milk and other things to like try to cool down the skin but that is no good with radiation mm-hmm. and it, uh so eventually they realized that they had to take first of all they had to strip everyone naked because their clothes i mean just touching their clothes your hand could could also become irradiated that's what I was going to ask. My next yeah. question, and I'm sorry to jump in, but the the medical teams that you mentioned, everyone's going to the hospital after a couple of days, and did the medical staff there also get ready? To be, <laughs> sorry, like secondhand. Absolutely, they absolutely became irradiated by being close to people, and and clothing that was, but it was secondhand, and it wasn't to the point that they ended up dying. What we will come to find out is that there's a level of radiation that you can have in your body over your lifetime without dying, and um, uh-huh. and it's cumulative. So mm-hmm. if we go, if we want to go to Chernobyl and walk around for a while, you'll wear your little ca- counter, radiation counter, badge or whatever, and it'll count how much you're getting. And then once you're done, you, you know, you have to kind of remember that number because if you want to go do it again, you still have to stay under a certain amount because we kind of, we know, we know the amount of radiation that a person can have within a, a lifetime. Um, and you can't, you just can't go over that number or it breaks you or it starts to break you. I know that's hard to, hard to explain. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Um... Yes. So the hospital workers were uh, doing their best. They they took they stripped everyone out of there, and it's these are mostly firefighters because it was first responders who came kind of came in first, and a few of the factory workers. So you're stripped of your uniform or your fire gear, and they put um, they took all of the clothing downstairs into the basement of the hospital, and they put it in a pile in like a, an unused storage room. And if you tour the area today, you can see it. It's still oh. all stacked there. Wow. And, um, and some of the people who carried it down did get radiation burns on their skin, if it touched mm-hmm. their skin. Um, they certainly all had some radiation sickness, but, but not, not to the point that they died. It was really the first, the first responders, p- people who were really close to the core who... Um, who actually ended up dying right away. Uh, so, let's see. Let me let me just finish that piece out. There's a lot of different directions I can go with this. So, the firefighters were moved eventually from the hospital in Chernobyl to um, Moscow, I believe, or no, Kiev, I think, uh, capital of Ukraine, and. And they received better treatment there. They were they were in seclusion. No one was allowed to kind of go near them except medical personnel who were taking precautions, etc. And uh, here's the thing about radiation sickness, I guess. Like initially, it presents as kind of a burn, like you have you have kind of symptoms on your skin itself, and then your skin sort of starts to heal, and you start to start to feel better. But at the same time, it's like a latency period because mm-hmm. it takes a few days for the radiation to like start to affect your internal. I mean, it's not going to go away. You cannot get it out of you. That's not possible. 
So it starts to affect your internal organs. And so it really was heartbreaking. Um, you know, the firefighters all started to get better. And then, then they, then it, you know, for after a few days, it turned around and it went really bad. And it's a really, it's a really terrible way to go. Um, cause it breaks down your cellular structure inside. So uh-huh. your, so it's like your individual or- cells are disintegrating. Yep. So your body so is sort of just collectively falling apart. Yes. So like massive organ failure, of course. Uh, and one thing they say is, uh, one of the most awful things is eventually like your blood vessels have broken, like you're still alive, but your blood vessels are so weak and have broken down so much that you can't even really administer someone morphine. Um, oh, wow. Because it does, it's not circulating right. Or you, there's <sighs> you try to find a vein. It, it's too, you know, you'll just pop it or break it. Mm. So, so the last, the last few days are really awful. And then you do, it is kind of like burning up from the inside. So, there's a physical, I mean, initially, maybe you had some burns, some burns on your hands or face or whatever. You start to get better and then you start to get worse from the inside out. And so one of the last things that happens is, is your external skin um, burns sort of from the middle, from the inside out. Like, so this is so awful. And I will say, in if you watch the HBO special, they don't show this because they thought it would be gratuitous and not necessary. But um, eventually, like, your face gets eaten away. And it's, I mean, you can maybe still talk a little bit, but, and the skin on your hands is gone. I mean, it takes a long time for you to die, and, and you there's not much left of you when you do. Mm-hmm. What a fun podcast! <laughs> oh. Okay. So, I I have an evil loaded question, Jillian. Okay. Did the deputy get radiation poisoning? <laughs> Dyatlov. Um, you know he he didn't get close enough. Uh, he sent other people in. I mean, he was at the building at the time, but he didn't get close to okay. the reactor. And I don't, I mean, it's he, not like I want him to die. Was, I don't, his life may have been shortened, but he was not one of the people who, who died in the initial yeah. months or, or even years. And, so. and maybe living with the decisions that he made. He, is he went to jail. Bad. Oh, he did. Okay. Yeah. He was the one who was eventually blamed for the whole thing, which okay. isn't fair. It wasn't entirely his fault, but it was his fault to a certain extent. So it's good that he went to jail. They eventually did. That like an amnesty thing, kind of saying, you know, this was a crappy situation all around. Right. So they did, and he, so then he got out of jail, but um, he, he spent a few years in jail. Okay. Um, okay, so now we've got, it's, let's say we're on day two or three, and we've figured out that this is finally worse than anything. So on a political scale, they're keeping it as secret as possible from the rest of the country and from any outside country. Um, that doesn't work especially well because it's the 1980s and I guarantee you we've got some spy satellites. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Focused right over that area all the time. So, um, it didn't take long for us to figure out what had happened. Not just us, but the European countries too. Um, and kind of started offering to assist. Like, can we offer our help in cleaning this up? Um, 
you know, like you do. But they kept denying, denying, denying for at least a while. Um, so top scientist eventually says, let's, we need to cover this. Because at the moment, like it, it uh, the initial explosion and burning had stopped, but it was still irradiating, of course. And yeah. that was just never going to stop. So they were going to cover it with sand and boron. And I don't know the science, but sand and boron is supposed to neutralize radiation to a certain point. Um, and they actually sent out, they said, we need, we need every, we need all of the industrial sand and boron in the entire USSR. Wow. And they were like, okay, you've got it. And so they, tra- they trained it. They put it on trains from all over the country and brought it in. And then they had to use, to, to drop it on the core, they had to use helicopters. And this is when that one helicopter crashed because it got too, too close. You wow. kind of had to, like, you had a little bucket of this sand and boron mixture. And you needed to drop it as close to the core as possible without getting over the core. Yeah, it would be hard. So that took a lot of loads of stuff and, and, uh, but it worked, but then there was a secondary problem, um, because what was underneath the boron and sand was still radioactive, uh, which is hot, hot, hot. The thought initially was, well, the water in the tanks will still cool it, but then they realized that what would actually happen is water that was in tanks would become irradiated itself, mm-hmm. boil, break the tanks, and mm-hmm. then get into the water supply. Yeah. Probably of all of Eastern Europe. So uh, they needed to find a way to also seal it off from below. So they went and talked to these miners. And actually, the miners, for reasons I don't, don't quite understand, they were called divers, which I kind of like. Hmm. But it was this great miners, this team of miners, they were working on a mine nearby. Um, but they were some of the best miners in the country. And they said, hey, we need you to dig a hole um, from the side of this building, underneath the building, and then lay this uh, really thick, uh, I think it was concrete, but I could be wrong there, but some kind of like pad, uh, you know, something that would stop the, ra- you would trap the radiation from getting further down into the soil. Yeah, protective layer. Okay, so so it'd have a protective layer on top and now a protective layer on the bottom. And the miners were like, well, isn't there radiation down below it as well? And they were like, yeah, but it's going to get into the water supply. And mm-hmm. so these miners, these divers, bless their heart, were like, hey, if it's going to kill our families and everyone else that we know, then we'll do it. Sounds like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, but it was real. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, this team of miners, I think it was about 60 miners, they um, were brought in, they worked around the clock to, to dig and lay this protective layer. It was really, really, really hot because of the radiation. Mm-hmm. And so they asked for fans... <laughs> To cool themselves off, which is, that's pretty normal inside a mine, I guess. You might have air, you know, fans to keep the air moving and, and to keep you cool while you're working underground. But mm-hmm. in this case, the fans would have moved the radiation around too much to be safe. So they, they mm-hmm. could not have fans. And mm-hmm. so they, what they ended up doing, uh, and this is true, they ended up 
they all like all 60 of them they worked in the nude oh geez yeah and it was <laughs> it was initially kind of a scandal like people were the the like political bosses were like what are they doing they're like hey you can't give us fans and you need us to risk our lives doing this you can't tell us what to do anymore <laughs> so they worked naked so there's just yeah a little bit of full frontal nudity in the hbo show just so you know <laughs> um that was the miners so that was good okay so here's the next piece and this is crazy um this is my favorite part because it's the craziest so once that was done the next thing they needed to do was um there were all these pieces of graphite that had fallen in the explosion and the ones that had fallen onto the ground they could um sort of bulldoze and bury in concrete or whatever and take care of but there were a bunch of them of, of pieces of chunks that had fallen onto the roof of reactor four and the the neighboring reactors. Mm -hmm. And there was no, they had to be, they had to be gotten off the roof and, and kind of like thrown into, I think kind of where the core used to be, like so that it all could be buried um, or taken care of with the boron sand concoction or whatever. Uh, Otherwise it would never stop being ma massively radioactive. Oh, and they were, the scientists were estimating at this point that um, if they couldn't get it contained, they were looking at, I mean, a massive chunk of Eastern Europe being entirely un uninhabitable for 20,000 years. Because hmm. um, it would have spread that far. It was already spreading, by the way. Um, it was spreading on the wind, in the air. Uh, luckily, it did not get into the water system because that would have been that would have been death. Because <laughs> you can't control that once it's start once it's gone. But the air stuff um, eventually kind of gets cleaned by the trees, or it floats off into the sky, or something. Hmm. So uh, people in neighboring countries, especially Germany and Poland, and well, it mostly kind of went uh, west and north. So Germany, uh, Denmark, and the Scandinavian countries got the brunt of the fallout. And they started, they didn't have to evacuate their cities, but they took precautions and told people to stay inside as much as possible. They canceled school so kids wouldn't be out. Um, started, you know, they distributed masks and some other protective things nuclear badges so you could kind of test how much you were getting, uh, radiation you were getting. Mm. And it wasn't until that was worldwide news that these other countries were doing that that the Soviet uh, government decided to go ahead and evacuate the city of Pret, which was right next to the disaster. Jeez. So it was many days. Like <laughs> There had been some outdoor weddings. Kids had been playing outside in the playground. It was beautiful sunny days, actually. Um, but, yeah, so then they, they said everyone has to get out. And, and it was one of those situations where things were left just as they are. Like, nobody was really able to pack anything. They were just told to leave. And I think mm -hmm. maybe initially they thought they'd be able to come back. 
once the danger mm-hmm. was over, but the danger is not over. <laughs> so they were they were all taken to another city, a similar city to the one they'd been in. Um, you know, recently been built to support some other factory or plant or something. All right. Getting back to the roof that has the graphite chunks on it. Um, it was not deemed possible to have humans go up and clean that off because the radiation was so intense. So initially, they Russia used their lunar landers. Um, they had been building some new moon landers, and they had them about ready for going to the moon, but they instead procured them for this. So they That's dropped amazing. them by heli- I know. They dropped them by helicopter onto the roof and they really didn't work. They they were kind of like they were at like they added a bulldozer or maybe it already had a bulldozer, but they added something so it would kind of push the rocks to the edge and drop them into the core. Um yeah. into the pit that was caused by the core. But um they either got stuck or somehow they didn't work. Um, it was a bad situation. So, um, tail between their legs, they eventually reached out to the Germans. The Germans had also built some new... But the the Soviets said, oh, hey, you know, it just needs to be able to withstand X amount of radiation. And they way underreported the number. Even though they knew the real number was way higher, they didn't want the Germans to know how bad it was. Um, So the Germans were like, oh, yeah, our our rovers can withstand that much radiation. But it was actually more than double that number. And once they got up on the roof, they died, too. So that's like three rovers that were killed in the Three moon rovers were killed in the, this disaster. So this is crazy. They finally said, look, the only way we can actually do this is to get people up there and move those rocks. We don't have any other ideas. And we have to do it fast because it's just going to get worse and worse. Um, but people can only withstand a certain amount of radiation for life, as I said. So, um, and looking at the amount of radiation on that roof, they determined that without experiencing uh, an effect that would shorten their life or damage them in any way, the most a person could probably stay up there was 90 seconds. Wow. So they had, um, they got teams together, teams of men, um, a few hundred at a time. They would ride uh, an elevator up to the roof. Uh, No, they, they had to take stairs. They took stairs up to the roof and then they were advised to stop and rest because they were going to need their breath for this next thing. And then for 90 seconds, they were sent out to the roof to pick up as much graphite as they could and throw it off the edge. And then they had, then the bell would ring and they had to get back onto the stairs and down out of the building. And so but, possible. 90 graphic- seconds. And that was their lifetime amount of radiation. They, those people could no longer get radiated for like the rest of their lives without experiencing, you know, cell damage. Yeah. What kind of equipment did they have for their hands? though because you can't touch that stuff like skin to you know rock con- uh, yes. contact they had some, they had some kind of heavy gloves so it didn't it didn't touch their skin okay. but also there were there were no um there was no safety gear i mean the soviet union couldn't afford it and they didn't have the materials to make it 
So people were kind of pulling, um, gosh, what was it? It was um, lead. They were scavenging like this like um, thin lead sheets. Or actually, I guess if you have lead, you can easily hammer it into a sheet. And they would Mm -hmm. scavenge it from other factories and things. And they would kind of make an apron for themselves. So again, the government couldn't provide any of this, but the people did their best to like find their own armor, basically. Wow. Um, and then it was made out of lead. Lead probably isn't good for you either, but <laughs> it's better for you than nuclear radiation. Oh. Uh, so again, this, this part just blows my mind more than anything. These, these teams of men went up, and in 90 seconds, they would clean off as much as they could, which was probably no more than maybe two chunks mm. for each person. And then um, they would be they would go down and, and a fresh team of men would go up and they would do the same thing. And in the end, I, it was 3,888 men that, that did this. Uh, and they each, again, just 90 seconds each, because that's all you can have. And... Uh, and, and yeah, those, none of those men, they all had to be careful to stay away from any radiation for the rest of their lives because they'd had their, their lifetime amount. Mm. Uh, it was... Is this the same kind of radiation like, like an x-ray or something? Would they yeah. not be able to get certain medical treatment because of that? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Um, it's also... Um, I mean, to a certain extent, they were conscripted, and I don't know how much they felt like they had a champ, a choice. Sure. But nevertheless, I still think it's incredibly brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked. They cleared off the roof. They got that radioactive material out of there. And then they were able to do kind of the final thing they did is they put, they built a big, like, steel, uh, they call it a sarcophagus. It's a cover that goes over the entire reactor four. Uh, and you can go, you can go now and see the, the sarcophagus uh, when you're there. So it, it, again, it covers that main, the main piece that exploded, which is still probably very deadly inside that sarcophagus. Mm-hmm. So, but it's the size of a building. You know what I mean? So the other, uh, uh, shoot. The other re- thingamajigs. Reactors? Reactors. It's <laughs> <laughs> like radiators. No. Um, the other <laughs> reactors, because there's seven of them, are you know somewhere between six, eight uh, others. They're in the same area, but certainly not like inside the same building. Correct. It's like a complex. See, when you're first telling the story, I kind of imagine. Okay, so they each kind of have their own stru- structure, and Here's so crazy. one sarcophagus. Here's what's crazy, Caitlin. Because they needed the power, like they, you literally couldn't stop making electricity. So while this was all happening, all the other reactors had to had to remain on. No way. Yes, and those and those teams of people to run them had to continue going to work. Oh my god. And running those other reactors because if not, then the entire city of of Kiev would have had no power. I just assumed that as part of the safety protocol, that was the first thing they did was they turned off all but the others. I mean, there was no extra power. I mean, wow. that's where it had to come from. So they kept all the other uh, reactors going, which that blew my mind too. When I first heard that, I was like, are you kidding me? 
turn mm-hmm. that crap off. But yeah, they did this. Okay, what else do I have in my notes? Um, oh, I know what. So the sarcophagus that they built is just containing the radiation. Right. Well, they did. They did what they already had done. I mean, they covered it with the boron and the salt, and they got the stuff off the roof and that kind of stuff, so that they could build a sarcophagus over top. But okay. yes, it's it is. No one, you don't go inside the sarcophagus. I don't think. But you can go up to it. Right. And and the idea is that over some period of time it will go away or no it's it's well, in the sarcophagus permanently i'm thinking of like hanford yeah. um you know they right. they have to find secure Listen, storage hanford is a nuclear power plant in southern southeast no I, it's State. not a power plant it's a waste facility a nuclear waste facility thank you yes yeah. southeastern washington state just fairly close to where we all live. So no, what they're they always worried was, about that leaking. It's underground, is my understanding. Uh, you can visit it now, I think. You um, can. Yeah, but, on, a, on a special tour, and I would love yeah. to. By the way, yeah. so cool. fascinating. But uh, so this happened in what did I say, 1986, and then in 2016 they recovered the sarcophagus. So it had been ninety-six, forty years. No, no, I'm not forty. Let's do the math. Eighty-six to twenty-sixteen. Uh, but they recovered it with a with a, a new layer of steel and concrete because you know it was breaking down, and That's we're going to keep doing that for as long as as possible. So it's not like you know. So going you know how where is this like it, it's gonna it's like it's an energy source that will never end. It's always going to be destructive, and it's never gonna wear out. Like you know how the end of- how elements have a half life. Yeah. So this one, these elements that are so dangerous to us that are that are inside the sarcophagus, and really, even outside the sarcophagus, like they don't really expect that the area close to here will be inhabitable for humans for 20,000 years. Like what you can go in radi- like you can go What's in the radius it. of that? It that I don't know. And oh. I don't I even question that number because um because you're a scientist, you're you're you've got the credentials to Exactly. <laughs> With my scientific credentials, I'm questioning that number. Because well, partly because it seems like and this is true for like Hiroshima too. Like things come back faster than we thought. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and whether it's good for humans or not, um, there are already like deer and bunny rabbits and foxes and things that live in that area. And when scientists are asked about that, they're like, "Well, why can they live there?" They're like, "Well, no, nuclear radiation is bad for the animals too, but not as bad for them as human occupation was." So it's <laughs> right. St- yeah. It's still a safer place for them than it was when people live there. So, um, 20,000 years is when they think it'll kind of like be back to normal. Hmm. Crazy. That's a big number. It is. Uh, okay. Let me give you some more numbers. 
there were 56 direct deaths. So that's not that many. I mean, it's too many. But, you know, that would be the initial first responders, the workers at the plant who had to go check things out. People who were who who died within the from the initial exposure within the next little bit. So it wasn't quite like I mean, somehow it's the same science, but it's not harming as many people as the bombs that we dropped in Mm -hmm. Japan. Definitely not. I I, I don't I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I mean, that was totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And of the 56, it, uh, it says 47 were accident workers. Uh, or power plant workers, and nine were children who died of thyroid cancer. There were just, um, that's what radiation does, is it affects your thyroid. And in fact, there's there's thousands of people who live in this area who walk around without a thyroid now because they had to have it removed because it was, I don't know what it is about your thyroid, but it absorbs radiation. I, I think what it does is it's involved in the in the, in cleaning it out, I think. Like in awesome. cleaning your body, and then it collects in the thyroid. But I, I have a medical background. I'm just, I know. I was just going to say, we have a scientist, and we have a medical doctor. <laughs> I'm not sure what I bring to the table here, uh, but I feel like we've got a great group. <laughs> yes. Uh, so in the overall, uh, and again, this we're, we're years into it now, but the estimated expected death toll, people who in the end had lives that were significantly shortened and mm-hmm. it's kind of it's really hard to estimate but the number is 4000 wow is i think that think. i think that's an estimate that that's a that's a future projections like those it people is. haven't yes no they, they haven't died exactly. yet i was just there are there something... are definitely people still living you can interview and talk to who were there at the time i was just reading something while you were talking about that that said there is some question about the math the statistical math that they're using for that um, oh, it actually, sure. potentially, it could be much, much higher than that. I'm not finding that. Um, I thought it was right up here. Well, and it's hard to, it's really hard to estimate whether if you died at 78 instead of 84, sure. mm-hmm. if your life was shortened because you had radiation or because of, that's just when you died. So, um, looking through my notes to see what other funny, fun, not funny. I was going to add to that, though, that I that I just saw with regard to people who were, um, um, you know, later effect, you know, because it's not like this initial there were a few people that died kind of just, you know, initially. But I was reading that uh, Ukraine has a state fund um, that if you were affected by this, you can. you know, you you can get state funds. I was just going to find that really quick. Sure, okay. By the year 2000, the number of Ukrainians claim, claiming to be radiation sufferers and receiving state benefits had jumped to 3.5 million or 5% wow. of the population. Wow. Honestly, that seems fine. That seems right to me. Yeah, I A mean. A lot of people lived within this. And, you know, they said if they hadn't been able to get those miners to line that to line the underside of the yeah. facility and keep it out of the water. I mean, all of Eastern Europe. I mean, it was, it would have, the entire city of Kiev would have had to be evacuated and would not be livable for the same amount, you know, 20,000 years. That's how, I mean, it would have spread that 
radiation so fast and so badly. Mm. So that was, it's actually pretty amazing that they, that they stopped it like they did, especially considering, and again, you have to remember, I mean, the, yes, the USSR like had their heads in the sand and didn't want to admit there was a problem and they were slower to react than they should have been. But also this wasn't something that anyone expected. Like no country would have been really great at handling this. And in fact, I think it's, it's on the podcast. I think there, uh, Peter Sagal is talking with the creator of the HBO show and, and they're talking about because America is, is so safety conscious. If this had happened here, uh, we probably would have evacuated the entire area for safety and then just no one could go in again. Um, but because they, the USSR was like, it's okay if a few people die, if that saves more lives, like oh. they sent people in to fix it. Like, like their we, society we would, has a we little different. Send people in to fix it because it'd be too dangerous to send them right. in. Right. They yeah. would, they would die for sure, and they would we would know they would die. We're sending them to their deaths, uh, so we wouldn't send people in. But the USSR was kind of a little bit more for benefit of country and not for individual benefit. Um, which I'm not putting that down. It's a different kind of culture, and I think there are other cultures around the world that are that way. We're a very individualistic mm-hmm. culture here, um, and the government doesn't get to decide when we die. So. Uh, it's a little, little different, but that, that piece was interesting. Here's something else. Not much was known about radiation at the time. Yeah. I bet we learned a lot. It was, it was no, yes. a lot from this. Exa- yeah. Well, yeah. Once the information got out, unfortunately right. they did try to smother as much of that as possible. Right. But, um, the locals at the time believed that vodka would protect them from radiation poisoning and treat it mm-hmm. so if you had exposure to radiation the drinking of the vodka was uh-huh. your best bet it made you feel better <laughs> it sure yeah. does yep um what else do i have in my notes that you need to know <laughs> da, da, da. uh sarcophagus oh gosh okay this is the worst um but I do need to mention it. Um, in the aftermath, in order to, again, contain the spread uh, of radiation, they had to employ teams of people. Gosh, there was a name for those, but I didn't write them down. I think they were, it was something like, something that meant like washing or cleansing or something. But um, they em- oh. employed teams of men, soldiers, and also volunteers and some conscripted civilians and they had to go through the empty villages uh, and they had to kill all the pets that were left behind because they were all irradiated and dangerous if they moved around got out of that area etc. Now that is covered in the HBO show it's episode 4 I don't recommend watching that part at all it's true it happened so it's part of the story but well and i guess they tell it pretty good because they mostly most of that part of the story is about how yeah i'm not i'm gonna how like messed up the uh sorry i wanted to swear right there how messed up messed up these people were because they had to go do this like that it, it was heartbreaking work and um 
they ended up mostly using some uh, soldiers who had re- returned from from uh, war, uh, the Gulf War or something. Who, or, like or they're somehow immune to more killing? Something like that, yeah. I don't know that if that's how the human... a person, maybe you can kill a cat or a dog or a kitten. But not, I'm case, not sure that's how the human... That was like, that's got to be the worst job in the entire world. Yeah. So that happened on a lighter note. I think I had. Oh, uh, Anatoly, Anatoly Dyatlov, he went to jail for a few years and then he got out. Um, and this I just looked up because I was curious. The, the name Dyatlov means woodpecker. Um, so he served four years and then he was released so it means wood, woodpecker the reason I look, looked it up because it's just a name it doesn't have to mean anything but another story that I'm going to do on this podcast someday is the Dyatlov Pass incident which has nothing to do with this particular man but the pass is named out is called the same thing um, mm-hmm. so apparently it, it means woodpecker pass and it's a great disaster story and it has to do with the the wilderness of Siberia. So we'll tell that story later. But that's what I've got. Questions, concerns, thoughts, prayers. Well, I guess I know a lot more about Chernobyl now. Yeah, uh, what did you learn, Caitlin? What's that? What did you learn? Oh, goodness. Uh, like the whole thing. I mean... <laughs> I think that the, you know, the, 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 the guys who did the mining uh, and, and also how they went about getting the graphite off the roof is, uh, you know, the most interesting yes. parts. And seriously me. heroic. And yeah. that's one of the things I love about, like, disaster stories in general is that usually you can find some corner of the disaster where people stood up and saved lives, even though it endangered themselves. So, And the other thing that's interesting about this particular story, especially in comparison to other ones, um, like it is a situation where typically we'd imagine the government stands up and, and moves in and um, provides relief of some sort, and, and your comment about how the citizens were scavenging and finding what they could to you know, create tools yes. or create protection and shields. You know, very to be fair, I don't think the government had the resources to provide anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because so, the country just well, wasn't that wealthy. Really... But yeah, I'm with you. We would, we would absolutely expect our government to provide safety gear. Although, uh, you know, some of our soldiers in Afghanistan, if you, if you need better... Uh, equipment than the very basic equipment you're given you have to buy it yourself so mm-hmm. well I, I should say i don't know that for sure i'm citing my source as the podcast um they talked about that how it was kind of similar to how our some of our our own soldiers have to buy extra safety gear in order to actually be safe because the basic stuff that's given isn't isn't the good stuff mm-hmm. that's a whole problem i find, pro- I find it pretty story. uh I find it pretty ironic that this whole, the whole thing started with a safety test. I mean, that's why. I know. (laughs) Good point. I mean, it wasn't just like regular. Well, and like I said at the beginning, being a, um, an anomaly, I mean, it wasn't in its like typical 
functioning day-to-day operations. Several things went wrong, right? Like the safety test caused the problem, but it only caused the problem because there was a problem with the water tanks the day before and they'd been... But also, I was reading a little bit... I was reading more about the safety test while you were talking and Mm -hmm. I mean, they were trying to figure out how to bridge the gap from a power failure to getting the generators, the diesel generators running at the speed necessary to take over. That's a great thing to try to find out. Right. But the fact that they're operating without that figured out first... Yeah, that just seems super, super dangerous. Just, it does. just as like it, it you shouldn't does, it running a machine if you don't have a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Super careless. Yeah, but and they also rushed into that, doing that test. They put the test off for a long time already, and so well, they, they run that, it a few times. Kind of like, failing. no, we're doing it. And it, they should not have done it. It kept failing, and so yeah. yeah. But also, I was just reading here. Um, in October of 1991, a fire broke out in reactor number two. So this, Chernobyl was still in operation. Um, and then they, Jesus. Yeah. The, there was I mean, a fire. that makes sense. It has to be. Yeah. I didn't read that far forward, but God. The, the authorities um, declared it damaged beyond repair and took it offline. Reactor one was decommissioned in 1996 as part of a deal between the Ukrainian government and... Um, International organization. Um, <laughs> the then whole world on, is like, um, would you mind turning off your nuclear reactor that's leaking radiation, please? On this, on December fifteenth, in the year two thousand, the then president uh, personally turned off reactor number three in an official ceremony, shutting down the entire site. So maybe there were only four reactors. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe there were some. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't matter really. But well, I no, said wait, seven. no, there's I something remember. here that says following the, following the accident, um, questions arose about the future and its fate. All work on unfinished reactors five and six were halted. Ah, so there okay. were four That's operating nice. ones okay. five and six were being built and they, um, they stopped those from being built. But the last one was not uh, decommissioned until the year 2000. Wow. Well, again, I don't, so, I don't necessarily have anything against nuclear reactors operated safely, but I can't mm-hmm. imagine asking workers to work in that area any longer. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, let's yeah. close like that how, down. In fact, that- I just found the number in my notes. Um, 360,000 people needed to move out of the area. They were relocated. 360,000. That's insane. That's a very large number. So, well, I, mean, I hope that I hope that they were able to resolve whatever they were testing for. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that that problem has been solved somewhere in these years <laughs> since. Pretty sure, even it has. though this one was a disaster, I hope they actually figured out how to bridge that like sixty-minute gap between a power failure and the the backup generators turning on. <laughs> oh God, yes, I'm I'm with you there. And let's see. So this is generally considered the worst nuclear disaster. Uh, Although people do argue that Fukushima might be worse. I think it's, they're so different and it's hard to, I don't think all the numbers are in for Fukushima yet. Mm -hmm. uh, As far as long-term 
health effects, especially. But uh, I will say that I watched a really great, no, I listened to a really great story about what happened at Fukushima. It was on the Moth podcast just last week. Uh, so you'll find it was, it was, for those of you, I don't know when we'll post this episode. So I will say it was in the month of July was when this was put the end of July. Uh, there was a, the moth podcast had a story about one of the engineers and he's, he was American. Um, but his whole life, he'd been flying around the world, servicing nuclear power plants. That was his job. He was an engineer, a nuclear engineer. And he happened to be there when the earthquake struck. And then again, of course, in the area when the tsunami hit. And he has a great first person account of what that felt like and and how scary that was. Um, But yeah, I think it remains to be seen which one is worse. And then, of course, when you're talking about worse, you've got to think about, well, are we counting loss of lives? Are we talking about general amounts of radiation sickness? Are we talking about how badly damaged the building was or... Well, and then there's something to be said about, about maybe like how they, how they're dealt with. I mean, I'm sure Japan's reaction to how to handle it was informed by, you know, the previous. um... I'm sure that it was. And, you know, I definitely remember stories at the time. There were Japanese workers who had to go back in, even though it was super dangerous and turn some crap off. Um, They had to go into the radiation zone but mm. i i guarantee you they had better than scavenged right. scavenged lead armor yeah uh to protect them but i definitely remember hearing that after that that happened so it's a little well, that's scary. an amazing I'm story still, that that yeah. uh that's you know now i have like a better frame of reference for like location both in like physical space and in history and kind of how how that all came about and what it what it means when we use the word oh yeah the Chernobyl incident or the you know Chernobyl disaster yes yeah now you it know. has I have a reference point now thanks yeah. well and I can't I cannot recommend the HBO series enough and if you're gonna watch the HBO series why not listen to the podcast <laughs> just to get a little deeper but then um uh, uh if you don't want to do that and spend a few hours doing that. If you still go to Google and and look at images, because I really think you should see, first of all, the picture that they, it might be black and white. I don't remember. No, it should be in color. I think it's just gray because of the explosion. But you'll see, a, you can find a picture of reactor four after the explosion. So you can kind of see how the rubber, rubble fell, fell. And then the rest of the building is intact. Because like I said, the, explosion went straight up mm-hmm. into the air and so it didn't explode out like you'd kind of expect an explosion to do and then uh there are really interesting pictures of what Priya pet looks like now all overgrown because people go there all the time you can totally uh take a tour uh and it's overgrown with shrubbery there's a really there's some fabulous creepy pictures of a, a children's amusement park that's all overgrown. And, you know, there's, you know, bumper cars that are kind of hiding out in the shrubbery. And there's an old rusty Ferris wheel that's covered in vines. And 
that kind of stuff, which is always cool, cool to see. If you want to find us on Facebook to see those pictures, you can go to um, Facebook and search for Calamity Podcast. Um, and whether or not we're going to post any links on Twitter, um, if you want to get in touch with us that way, we can, you can find us at Podcast Calamity. And then last but not least, if you want to suggest a new disaster for the Coolman sisters to cover, you can always send your suggestions um, to our email address, calamitypodcast at yahoo.com. We love hearing from our Yay. listeners, and we definitely are going to pay attention if, if there's a specific disaster you have in mind. I'm sure we've already got it on our list. We'll just bump that higher up and make sure we cover it sooner rather than later. Um, oh, and I should mention, too, our website. It's www.calamitypodcast.com. Um, that's basically the central place where you can find not only how to get in touch with us, but also more information about the hosts and uh, all the recent uh, episodes if you're wanting to um, get links to them and, and listen to them online. Music